When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Happy New Year, everybody. 2021. Yes, sir. Let's get the ball rolling. Yes, yes, yes. Say goodbye to 2020. And again, I hope everyone has a fabulous new year, healthy, prosperous, and let's move forward. I am so pumped up about today's podcast. First of all, it's brought to you by Roy's Umbrella for all of your home loan needs. Take advantage of the low, low rates right now. Get on board because I've been told uh, that it's going to take longer. There's so many loans right now. So many people are taking advantage of these low rates that there eventually will be a little bit of a backup. So don't wait. Get on board. Let Roy's Umbrella do it all for you. Just go online, roysumbrella.com. So I thought today on the new year, all right, to start 2021, we would kind of listen to some of the guests that I had on starting back in early October, and who better to have on the show as my first guest than the great Charles Barkley. And Charles and I talked about many things, but the impact that Moses Malone had on his career. Moses Malone is the most important person in my basketball career. You know, Grant, I was the number five pick in the draft. I played about 295 pounds in college. I was in college for three years. I led the SEC in rebounding every year. When I got to the NBA, I wasn't getting to play. And I, Moses stayed in the same building with me, stayed in the penthouse. I was way down on the bottom, just for the record. And uh, I said, Moses, can I come see you tonight? And I went up to his condo one night, and I said, Moses, why am I not getting to play? Uh, he says, uh, you know, you fat and you lazy. I'm like, <laughs> what do you mean? He says, what part of that you didn't understand? He said, Charles. You weigh 293, 94 pounds. You can't play at that weight in the NBA. He says, you're lazy because you're fat. And Grant, this guy, well, first of all, I went downstairs and cried because it hurt my feelings, obviously. And he said to me, hey, listen, if you want to be a great player, you got to get in shape. And this guy who was already Hall of Fame bound, one of the greatest to ever do it, met with me every day, every night. He said, let's lose 10 pounds. I get to 290. He's let's lose 10 more. I get to 280, and now I'm starting to get to play. Then it gets to 270, and now I'm starting, and I'm working my behind off. And like I say, because all I'm doing is playing defense and rebounding, because I'm with Dr. J, Moses, Marici, Andrew, Tony. Wow. They're not calling no plays for no rookie. <laughs> then, I get to two, then I get to 260, 
Then I get to 250. I actually get to 240, but I don't have a lot of strength and energy at 240. So Moses says 250 is your playing weight, and the rest is history. But if it wasn't for Moses taking time for a fat kid from a small town in Alabama, making him lose 50 pounds, you know, and Grant, you've been in the NBA for 100 years just like me. We've seen guys eat their way out the league. Oh, yes. Yeah, we've seen guys oh, yes. eat their way out the league. So if it wasn't for Moses Malone, I wouldn't be where I am today. I'm close with Spud Webb, and he says the same thing about Moses Malone, that he's the best player, he's the best guy he's ever been around. But he said that he's never laughed as hard in his life as when he was a teammate with Mo. I mean, it had to be just unbelievable being around that guy every day. He was something else. Well, not just him, though. Remember, I had Dr. J, wow. uh, Maurice Cheeks, Andrew Tony, Clement Johnson, Clint Richardson, Bobby Jones. You know, and that's actually, I've always said, one of the biggest problems with the NBA today is they don't have enough old guys on the team. Those guys taught me how to, number one, get in shape. They taught me how to handle my money. They taught me how to dress. I mean, I think every NBA team should have an older guy who these guys can talk to about, hey, how do you handle your family? Because your family, you know, they're going to use up all your money if you let them. That's there's a reason 80% of professional athletes go broke, because family and friends are always beating them up for money. So I think you need to teach the young guys that. I think you need to teach them how to dress. I think you need to tell them, okay, listen, guys, no matter how good a player you are, you're only going to play in the NBA a small period of time. You know, you need to save your money now because this money got to, to last you the rest of your life. I think all I learned all of that from those guys. Another character, former Sacramento King Scott Pollard and a dear friend of mine. I visited him at his home in Indianapolis and I asked him if the 2002 ending to the King season still haunts him. Oh, when it's brought up, I mean, I don't just randomly just think about it. Sometimes I do, but most of the time it's brought up on a podcast or an interview or somebody tweets at me or, or, you know, mentions it, one of my friends or whatever. Uh, So when it does get brought up, it absolutely eats at me because there were so many times in that series we had a chance to close them out. But regardless of what you say about game four, you know, Samaki hitting that right. half court buzzer beater that shouldn't have counted. It correct. wasn't a buzzer beater at halftime, which would have made Hori's shot in, insignificant. That's correct. But there's a lot of things in between there that we could have done better to make Hori's shot insignificant. But game six kills you, doesn't game it? Game six kills you. Right. But game, game five. But my point is, no matter what, we did our job the whole season to earn best record in the league, to have home court advantage throughout the playoffs. So we had game seven at home. That is what you play for. You missed that advantage. Free throws. And, in, and you go into game seven and basically you crap the bed. Yeah. You can't make a shot. That's why the Lakers were the champions because they closed it out on our court. They played championship level yeah. basketball and we crapped the bed. We couldn't make a shot. We weren't discombobulated. And that is why they won. It wasn't because they were better than us. It was because they were mentally tougher than us. And we're going into game seven reeling from game six and thinking about, well, we're against the refs too, or whatever it was. I wasn't thinking that way. I was thinking, hey, 
shit, we got game seven. Let's do this. Let's go. It's a one-game series. All those cliches. This is what we play for. The pressure's on. We're at home. We have the best fans in the world cheering us on, and I have our backs. And we go in there and crap the bed at home in front of our own fans. And that's the part that hurts. None of the other stuff really bothers me or grates on me, the conspiracies and all that. Those hurt. Those I think about those things. But there's nothing you can do about that. What we could have done is played basketball as a team and the way we had been playing all year, especially against the Lakers, and handled business in, at home in front of our fans. The voice of the NBA, the TV voice of the New York Knicks, Mike Breen. Mike's one of the great guys that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting in this business. No ego, just is always there for his fellow colleague. Just a great, great person. And you can see why with the way he responded when I asked him about things that are important to him and things that he does on an annual basis. Take me back to early in your career. Was there one individual or one moment that changed your future as a broadcaster? Boy, that's... <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard. Well, first off, the answer to the the first part, uh, one individual. No, there's just there's just too many, and it you know it starts from when you're a kid with with your parents, and then teachers, and then uh, mentors that you had. So it's really it's really impossible to to put it into one. I, I've been so fortunate all through high school and college and, and in my professional professional career to to just meet the right kind of people, people that wanted to help you and want nothing in return. And, you know, you try and emulate that and try and, and turn it around and, and help others as well. And, and although I'm sure I fall drastically short of the people that have helped me, it's 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 something that I, I strive to do because I just you don't forget. And one of the things I do on, on every year on uh, the NBA finals, there's there's a handful of people who I send on game one of the NBA finals every year. I send them a note to tell them that I'm thinking about them that day, because if it wasn't for them, I would not be calling those games. And you just try and remember and and as many people as you can. And, and sometimes the impact is enormous and sometimes it's a, a lot more subtle, but it's just as important. That's that's been the, the my task over the past several months is making sure that all the people get thanked. Maybe the most controversial topics of the last couple of years has to do with the Baseball Hall of Fame. Marcos Breton, join me, the outstanding longtime columnist of the Sacramento Bee, 30-plus years. And so I asked him his opinion. He has a vote. That's right. He's part of the Baseball Writers Association. I asked him, should Bonds be in the Hall of Fame? So I don't know if you rem- if you recall, but when I was – that was like my primary gig. I was very critical of Barry Bonds, and I would – I would argue, I think without exaggeration, that in the era that the last years that Bonds played, I think of all the writers in Northern California, I think there was no one who was more critical of him than I was. But a funny thing happened when I got my vote was that I began to really think about a couple of things. One, Bonds, Clemens, and a number of other guys, uh, the list is too long to, to mention at this point. They're all members of good standing. Their records have not been altered in any way. The games that they played in have not been voided, and they're eligible to vote. And, and 
you know, some of these some of these newer guys have stale uh, PED tests and and but but that first generation who were using, and I don't think there was any doubt that they were using. They were using for a while. There were no rules in place to address the issue of, of performance enhancing drugs, and so I felt as critical as I was of Bonds and Clemens. I felt uncomfortable being someone who was going to lay down the law that had never been enforced in the first place. And I also felt like that the steroid era happened and it's in some instances still happening and that there should be some acknowledgement in the in the Baseball Hall of Fame Museum that it actually did happen. And so and I and I would wager that there are guys who have been voted in who also use because let's face it, there's no incentive for anyone to tell the truth on this. And, and so I, I think there's been rampant lying uh, about baseball. And so then it becomes like a popularity contest. And so I have used my vote to vote for Bonds and Clemens because the slippery slope that I'm on, and I think we're all on slippery slopes, we're all on positions that are based on our own value judgments that I feel like those two guys were Hall of Famers with or without PEDs. Now, listen, I mentioned Pedro Gomez earlier, dear friend of mine. He feels the exact opposite as I do. And he has not voted for those guys. And so I have been part of a fair of a slim majority. And slim majority does not get you in the Hall of Fame. You need 75% of the vote. And at this point, I'm not sure. I don't, in fact, if I were to bet, I would bet that they won't, that Clemens and Bonds won't get there by a writer's vote. Maybe that a veterans committee later will take that on. But I, I think that the verdict is going to come down that the writers feel like that that should be disqualified. This shouldn't come into play, but Bonds was an ass throughout much yes. of his career with the media and the writers, and they have a vote. Do you think that hurts him? I don't think it helps him. I mean, I was around when he was an ass. And uh, I mean, if there was a bigger ass in sports, I didn't, I was in a run. Now, my understanding was I was in New York and I, and I, my exposure to Clemens was very limited and he, he seemed like he had those characteristics as well. But Bonds in his day seemed to enjoy being a negative force. And he used negativity as a motivator for him. And what happened happened. So I was on the, you know, not, it was never directed at me by him just me individually, but I definitely was part of a of groups of writers who, who felt the wrath. Uh, so I don't. He was disrespectful. He was always, I, was I never was around the guy without him being yeah. disrespectful. He was disrespectful to everyone. And again, I wasn't around him every day, but every time I was around him, that was, I was like, wow, that's got to be one of the most disrespectful human beings I've ever been around. It was incredibly disrespectful. Uh, I saw him be needlessly harsh, borderline abusive. Yep. When it was it was unnecessary. So then, you know, you're depending on that that group of people then control your fate. Maybe my favorite interview, and if it's not the favorite, it is right up there with Sean Salisbury. Sean, of course, former quarterback at USC, former NFL quarterback, was tremendous for many years at ESPN. There are guys that Talk to talk, and then there are those that walk the walk. Sean talks to talk, and he walks the walk. And there was one Christmas that not only changed his life, but changed the life of a complete stranger. I was in Dallas, 
and I live in Houston, so it's four hours away, and it's Christmas, and I this it was my Christmas to have, you know, their good mom had them the next morning on Christmas Day. It was my Christmas to have them Christmas Eve. And my three children, my daughter and my two sons, we got together, exchanged gifts, had dinner, did all that, and stayed the night, and they go and woke up at their mom's house the next day. So I drove, was on my way back to Houston. And it's, Grant, just to paint the picture, I'm headed up or down I-45, about 45 minutes, 40 minutes outside of Dallas. And I'm feeling sorry for myself. Uh, you know, my eyes are watering a little bit, not to be cheesy, but they were. I wanted to be with my kids. I was going through, you know, just back into turning my life around. And in the process of all this, I'd lost the house. My dad, within 18 months, uh, 18 and a half months, my, I'd been divorced. My dad died. I'd lost my house. I'd lost a job. And I was just reeling. And I'd finally started to work my way back with some help and opportunity. So I'm driving back. And I've been about a year into my new job, but I'm still feeling sorry for myself. And I'm driving up to, to down the freeway and I'm thinking, I wish I was with my kids and blah, blah, blah. And so I see a guy walking alongside the freeway on the shoulder, just in, you know, just off the shoulder. And it's about 60 degrees, maybe wind blowing. He's carrying a big old duffel bag and a baseball cap with a big jacket on it. It's semi uphill. I drive by him and I'm thinking to myself for about the next eight to 10 miles, I'm in the fast lane. And I'm thinking, Sean, go back. It's Christmas Day. This is Christmas Day now. Wow. I'm driving back to Houston to go have dinner with friends of mine in Houston and their family and to watch some college bowl games and NBA on Christmas Day, right? So I go about 18, and I, there's an off-ramp. And sometimes, you know, you'll go three or four miles before you get an off-ramp out there in, 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 the open, in the open road. So I swerve across, and I get off the off-ramp about eight to eight miles down the road. I go over the overpass, come back down. The whole time I'm thinking, I hope somebody in that 15 minutes or whatever has been picked him up. So I'm driving back north, and he's still walking south, and I look across the freeway about back eight miles, and he's still walking. Nobody picked him up. So I got to go about three more miles to go under the underpass to go back south, if that makes sense. So I pull up to him. I roll the window down in my truck, and I got a $100 bill between my fingers. And I'm trust me at the time, I'm trying to make ends meet myself. Right. So I got one hundred dollars and I look out and I said, Merry Christmas. He's got a long grayish silver hair and, you know, just a, probably about a buck 60 has about four teeth in his head. That's it. Mm. But a nice guy. So I stick the hundred dollars out bill out the window, not to be, you know, to, to be condescending, but say here, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I hope life's OK for you. And he took he looked at the hundred. and He said, you sure? I said, yeah, I'm take this. I rolled the window back up. I wished him luck. And as I started to put the car, truck and drive, I shoved it back in the park, hit the window. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Katy, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston. I said, for what? He said, well, I'm going to go find work there. I said, throw your duffel bag in the back of the four-door truck. I said, put it in the back and pop hop up here in the front. And I'm, and this is so horrible because I'm like an obsessive, compulsive, non-smoking hygiene guy. Right? Right. <laughs> so the first thing that comes to my mind is, and this is so horrible, but transparent. I'm thinking it's Christmas day, Sean, how dare you think this, but is he going to smell a cigarette smoking? Am I going to have to drive him for an hour? And, 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 you know, I thought, how dare you after the long, I'm thinking you, it's so pathetic, right? That the judgment that we all put on people. So he's nothing. He gets in, I introduce myself. We start talking and I said, well, if I'm going to drive him and I'm thinking I'm going to take him to a truck stop grant about it, you know, 30 minutes away, one that has the showers, I'm going to get him more food give the money, get him warm if they need a beanie, whatever it is, right? And then I'm going to take care of him. Then I'm going to finish my the next three hours or two and a half hours of my drive back to Houston. 
We start talking. He's a big sports fan. St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan. I said, how'd you get here? He said, oh, I've been walking and hitchhiking for, for, for a handful of days. Wow. I said, really? I said, how'd you get to this point? He goes, well, I'm estranged from my family. I, not talk, I, I, I went through a drug problem years ago. I don't have an ID. I don't have a Social Security card. And I don't have a uh, birth certificate. Didn't know where any of it was. Now, he's just about 59 years old, smart. Very, and we started talking history, and I'm telling you, history buff. So we're driving, and I'm thinking, I'm going to drive him a little farther. So we get inside. I said, where do you want to go to Katie for? I said, where are you going to sleep? He goes, I'm going to take out my sleeping bag, and I'm going to put it under a tree, and that's where I'm going to sleep for the next handful of months because it's warm here. It's cold in, in St. Louis. I said, huh, okay. So we're talking, and we're just talking about everything. So I get inside the area about an hour outside of Houston near the woodlands, and all he wanted to do was get inside the bus area so he could always take the bus. He couldn't drive. And so I go into a hotel. I'm checking him into a hotel. I'm going to pay for it for a few days and give him some more money and say good luck. So we check in. She goes, no, you can't get the bus from here. you got to go about another 20 minutes inside the loop area to get to, to, to take the bus all over. And so I'm like, okay. And so I said, just come with me. I'm taking you into the gallery near my place. I'll put you in a hotel there. So not to make a long story any longer, I check him into a hotel. This is Christmas Day. I said, I'm going to see you in two days. Be right here. Uh, I'm going to call you tomorrow to make sure you're here. And then I'm going to drive you to Katie. And you get cleaned up and do it all. Drive you to Katie. And then you, I'll drop you off because he was going to just stand outside of Home Depot and <laughs> get odd jobs. Sure. That, that, honest to God, that's the truth. Wow. And so I, I, I call him the next day. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of times homeless – they're comfortable being homeless. And I didn't think he'd answer the phone. He answers the hotel phone. I said, I'm going to be there at four o'clock. This was two days later. Now. Hmm. Four o'clock. The next dad called him. And I said, I'll be there. But I said, I'm going to be there at four o'clock. We're going to go watch some college football games. And he says, oh, OK. So I show up. He's packed, ready to go, showered, ready to go. We go to my friend's house. We start watching college football. I don't let him drink because he said he'd had he'd lost he'd lost all his teeth before because he had a drug problem. But he'd been clean for a while. So I said, "Well, we're going to go over there. I can't let you drink because my friend had a bunch of people. I'd asked him if it was okay. So we go over there and it gets about eleven thirty midnight. Games are over. Everybody's sitting around and going home. So instead of drive, I said, "Come on, just come stay at my place because we checked him out of the hotel." I said, "I'll take you to Katie tomorrow." Well, sixteen months later, ID job. Got his birth certificate. Now, it was a pain in the rear to go through all these birth certificate, got him a social security card, got him a job, put brand new teeth in his head, got him a haircut. He'd spend Christmases with me and my kids. My kids started calling him Rusty, uh, got him reconciled with his family 16 months later. He's now got a job living in Missouri, home and healthy, drug free with full teeth in his mouth. And my kids ask about him all the time. He became family. And so while I people say you changed his life, no, no, no. Well, he changed my life because I thought I knew compassion. And I know that's a long story, Grant, but I had to paint the picture. His name's Russell Bursett and one of the one of the really, really good people. We'd sit up and watch baseball games till all hours of the night. I am forever grateful God put him in my way because I tried to resist it. And I'll never resist an opportunity hmm. like that to make a difference because it changed my life. One footnote to that story on Christmas Eve. I received this direct message. Hey, Grant, I just listened to the podcast with Sean Salisbury. And it moved me to tears. I am also going through a lot. Lost my family and friends due to a bad relationship, in parentheses, narcissist. Didn't know where to go. And found myself back at my mom's at 43 years old. I contemplated giving up. But after hearing him, I have found hope. I'm starting to work my way back to my family and friends who are my support group. 
and who love me. Thank you for that. Thank you, Sean, for your words. And, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. I, I, I don't know if there are others that were impacted positively like that person, but that makes this all worthwhile. And I can't thank Sean Salisbury enough. Jerry Reynolds. There's only one Jerry Reynolds. We all love Jerry. Jerry is synonymous with the Sacramento Kings. He's also synonymous with Larry Bird because they're both from French Lick, Indiana. And you just can't make stories up like this when it comes to helping out mom around the house. He uh, obviously drew the fascination of every single person in the French Lick area, except for maybe your mom after his playing days coming over to help you at your mom's house do yard work uh, one day. Uh, <laughs> refresh my memory on that story of what your mom said. Yeah, that was one of those deals. He, of course, Larry, a uh, really good guy, always very humble, you know, and just a natural worker. And, uh, you know, so I was going to, well, mom and mom's yard for going back. And, you know, he said, hey, come up and help. And, and so, you know, basically after the visit, he said, hey, Jerry, uh, you know, can I say hi to your mom? I said, sure. She'd love to see you. You know, so, I mean, certainly we, we knew the family. They knew ours and things like that. And he stuck his head indoor and visited with mom. You know, and she chatted a little bit with him. And then pretty soon he left. And and after he left, you know, like like old people, like I am now, mom said, now, now, which one of Rose Bird's boys was that? <laughs> and, and I said, well, mom, that was Larry. Oh, yeah, Larry. He, whatever happened to him? <laughs> I said, mom, <laughs> mom, he, he really did good. Good. He was, <laughs> I said, he's uh, really a great basketball player. Don't you remember him playing, you know, in high school and stuff? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember you saying he was real good. Uh, of course, this is part I didn't tell you. I said, she said, now, 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 Jerry, what was he as good in high school as you? I said, Mom, good grief, no. I said, why would you even think that? <laughs> good grief, no. <laughs> Neil Funk just retired as the longtime voice of the Chicago Bulls, over 40 years announcing NBA basketball. Think about all of the games that he had the pleasure of doing, the championships with Jordan. I asked him if there's one call above the rest that stands out as his favorite. Only because it was kind of, it, it signaled like the end of the dynasty, the end of the era. And so, I mean, right at that particular moment, I mean, I didn't know for sure that, you know, nobody was going to be coming back and that Phil was going to move on and Michael was going to retire. But certainly that became kind of my defining moment in terms of, uh, uh, highlights during a career. And I, you know, I, I did it long enough that you're going to have lots of games that you remember and finishes that you remember and big shots that you remember. Uh, and there's probably a lot of them that you forget too, but that one was kind of the, the signature of that, that Bulls dynasty. And so for that reason, 
that that was really my favorite. Yeah. You know, in the last dance, they chronicle how competitive Michael was all the time, regardless of what he was doing. But the practices and I'm curious with all the games that you did of Michael Jordan, I would imagine you've had so many other great memories watching him compete either in practice or whether you ever had a chance to play golf with him. I don't know if you had enough money in your pocket to go out and play golf with Michael Jordan, but his competitiveness and all your years of, of covering the NBA that, that, you know, spanned uh, many decades, over 40 years. Was there ever anyone more competitive than Michael Jordan? I, there certainly wasn't anyone more competitive. And, you know, when you say, well, he was the most competitive ever, there have been so many great players in, in the league and, and guys who were competitive. But uh, Michael was so demonstrative about that side of him. And it came out, uh, I think, in that uh, the last dance the documentary, um, how competitive he was, not just in, in playing basketball, but everything he did. I, I just can't imagine that there was anybody that was more competitive than he was. I mean, a lot, to, I, I don't think there's anybody in the league doesn't want to win. The question is how hard are they willing to work to make it, uh, you know, make it so that they win. And for Michael, that was just every day, every single day, whether it was practice or a game. I mean, he was the same in practice as he was playing in a NBA game for the championship. I mean, so that was maybe the difference. You know, Michael just didn't take a day off. Charles Davis, the outstanding announcer for CBS Sports. He and Ian Eagle make up the number two team covering the NFL on Sundays. I've known Charles for over a decade, most unassuming, humble. Uh, I'll just say it like this about Charles Davis. You'll never meet anyone in the business that has anything bad to say about Charles Davis. Charles, who was born in Tennessee, but moved to New York in New Paltz at age two, grows up north of New York City and ends up back playing college football for the Tennessee Volunteers, I asked him how that came about. For me, it was, you know, as you described, my mom's family's from Elizabeth in Tennessee, where I was born. A lot of people would identify that with Jason Witten, the former Cowboys, now with the Raiders uh, tight end. He played there for his grandfather, Coach Ryder, who's the legendary coach there, Elizabeth and High home of the Cyclones. And I believe Jason's brother is now the head coach at Elizabeth. And wow. they're playing for state titles and the whole deal. So it's a pretty good line there. Yeah, I was born in Elizabeth. That's my mom's family's from. Dad from West Virginia. As you said, we moved to New York State when I was two. Condor Tomaway was the reason I went back to Tennessee. Saw him play season opener, Tennessee-UCLA National TV, 1974, I believe. And just even at eight years old, Grant, I knew I was watching something different, meaning – Black quarterback, 1970s, deep south. What? And my dad was a quarterback in high school and in college. He played at Bluefield State in West Virginia, which is a historically black college and university at the time. It's now integrated. And I just remember looking back, the pride he had watching that happen because he wanted to go to West My dad wanted to go play quarterback at West Virginia. And, of course, they weren't going to do that in 1950, you know, 55, 56. So here we are, 74, even as an eight-year-old intuitively, I knew something was different and it was cool. 
and Condridge was phenomenal. And I told my dad that day, as he's recounted many times, Dad, I'm going to go to Tennessee. Now I won't go to Tennessee. I won't play quarterback. Well, I got to Tennessee. Just didn't play quarterback. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it all, it all it all worked out. And you know the funny part, Grant? I never actually met Condridge until I graduated. Wow. Because he was playing in the CFL during that time. He was up there, you know, winning their their MVP a couple times, winning Grey Cups, the whole thing. Had he's a Hall of Famer in the Canadian Football League. So he wasn't around because you know they play summertime. So when we were over there working out, he was up there playing games. So I didn't actually meet him until I had graduated and was able to say, hey, I said, hey, I'm Charles Davis. And he goes, oh, I already know the story. <laughs> oh, wow. How about that? Man, that's great. You know, there's so much attention, and rightfully so right now, on social justice and systemic racism. You grow up north of New York, as I said, about 80 miles. And then, you know, as an 18-year-old young man, you find yourself in Knoxville, Tennessee, playing for the Tennessee Volunteers. What was that like for you at that period of your life? Well, Grant, it was was interesting because having Southern family, I thought, you know, I'm fully prepared for this, right? Even though I grew up a northerner, you're not fully prepared. There's <laughs> just no way. I don't care who you are, right? So people were wonderful. I wouldn't change a thing. You know, if, if they asked me, you know, where would you go to school? I'd go play at Tennessee and do that all again. I love the people there. I love being part of big orange country, the whole deal. You think about the Dodgers. They just finally won a World Series for the first time since the late 80s. Remember the famous home run, Kirk Gibson off Eck? The Dodgers beat the Oakland A's in five games. Had it not been for Oral Hershiser, Mickey Hatcher would have been the MVP of that World Series. He joined me on the podcast, and Tommy Lasorda had just been admitted into the hospital in intensive care. And I asked Mickey what it was like playing for and being around Tommy Lasorda. Oh, it was, you know, he was amazing. He was a great motivator. You know, I dedicate my whole life to him because he really was a guy that molded me, not only during the baseball season, getting the best out of me, but my coaching career and, and stuff that he had taught me that uh, that gave me a career in baseball for my whole life, during baseball and after baseball. But, you know, a funny story is that uh, yesterday we got the call. He's in intensive care, and me and Mike Socia were playing golf. And, they, and so we send a video recording over to his daughter, and his daughter played it for Tommy. And Tommy kind of opened his eyes and put a big smile on his face. So we really felt good about that. And she says, you know, he's a fighter and and hopefully he'll get through this. But Tommy was just a great motivator. He expected everybody to to play hard and and never feel sorry for themselves. Part of failing was part of growing up and and you move on and and learn from it. And uh, uh, he was that type of guy that uh, really made guys play a lot better than what they were. What a great story. What a great story about you and Mike sending that video uh, and and Tommy smiling. And and boy, a storyteller, right? I mean, you could write book after book after book with your time around Tommy Lasorda. Great manager, great baseball guy, but funny as all heck, right? Oh, he's funny, but I don't think I could share a lot of the really good stories on air. But, uh, you know, he was just an amazing person. And, uh, you know, he loved his players. He was like a, a dad to them. And, uh, you know, I'll share the story when I first came up and me and Mike Socia were rookies. And he says, hey, I'm going to this Italian restaurant. Go to the Italian restaurant. And he says, get a, get a booth. 
He says, just get a menu, don't order anything. And he says, just keep looking at me. And so the manager comes over and he points at our table. And so he gives us, he goes, if I go to my chin, that means I'm going to talk to him. If I go to my nose, it's looking good. If I go to my ear, he goes, get the most expensive restaurant. He's paying for it. <laughs> so <laughs> that was Tommy. So whenever he went to the rear, his ear, boy, we went for it. <laughs> I love but it. He took care of his young guys, you oh. know, and, and that was Tommy. Kenny Albert, boy, when you talk about versatile sportscasters, he's the only one currently that's doing all four sports in North America. Think about that. The NFL, MLB, right? You think about doing the NHL. You think about doing the NBA. Boy, is he blessed. And he's got a story that I don't know if anyone else on the planet could quite have a story like Kenny Albert and his mom. Well, my father, during his days broadcasting the Knicks and, of course, uh, the NBA and NBC, back in the 70s, though, before his national duties, he also was doing the local sports on the 6 and 11 o'clock news in New York on WNBC, and he became friendly with a number of local athletes, and, and one of those was Julius Irving, Dr. J. And back when I was probably 8, 9, 10 years old, on occasion, we would go to the Irving household to his kids' birthday parties, and they would come to our house a couple of times. And I remember Dr. J playing tennis in our backyard and, and even playing basketball. We had a we had a regulation hoop and a six-foot hoop on the driveway. So we actually played a couple of two-on-two games uh, with and against Dr. J. But on one of the occasions at his house, the adults broke out in a, in a horse game. And uh, Julius Irving and my mother, who was probably in her late 30s at the time, maybe early 40s, they were the last two standing, and she actually won the game. I remember she hit a, a corner jump shot to win the game. Boy, thank goodness that we had the last dance to watch back when we had the first wave of the pandemic and we were all pretty much locked in our homes. The director of The Last Dance, Jason Hare, Join me. We talked about a lot of things involving that. And again, an incredible documentary that Jason won an Emmy for. I asked him to kind of put put everyone in his head about how he was able to just piece this thing together chronologically going back and forth in time. This one was particularly challenging, like you said, because of the different storylines and the chronology of those storylines. I, I, I drilled into our crew, producers and editors and everybody that, that chronology is our, our biggest challenge and our biggest enemy in this thing because we have to find a way to wrestle that to the ground or else people aren't going to know what we're talking about. So we decided pretty early on that it was going to be two converging timelines and and the way that I, I envision it and the way that I articulated it over and over to our editors was that we're on a highway, we're on a trip here with this dock and the highway that we're on is the 97-98 season and we're going to get off at exits along the way. And those exits are going to chronologically get us closer and closer to the end of the 97-98 season. But the first exit is going to start in 1984 when Michael arrived in in uh, Chicago. And we'll tell how he got there. And then, you know, the next exit will be uh, he wins Rookie of the Year and then he has the foot injury. And so we're getting closer and closer on those exits. But I told him you have to keep getting back to the highway because people need to know what this thing is about. And it's about the 97-98 season, which was called, as we know, 
The Last Dance by Phil Jackson. And that's why it's called The Last Dance, and that's why the chronological spine of this thing is the 97-98 season. So I used to tell them that on those exits, you can get off, you can stop to eat, but you can't stay overnight. You have to get back on the highway. I'd go in and, and review a cut, and there would be uh, nine minutes on, on uh, Scotty Pippen's backstory in Arkansas. And I said, we're staying overnight here. We only have time for like four and a half minutes on that one. Let's stop to eat. Let's get back on the highway. We've got to get back to 98. So that was how I pictured it in my head. And that became a useful metaphor, I think, as we did this thing. About a year and a half before its release, you and I had lunch in downtown New York. And you showed me a couple of excerpts. And I was blown away at looking at the video. And you just said, you have no idea. This is going to be amazing. It ended up being the most watched documentary in ESPN history before you said you did about two years of research before you even do one interview before you even, you know, really have your sleeves rolled up all the way to your neck. You knew this was going to be must see TV, didn't you? I mean, you knew you had something that could be, it blow people away and it blew people away and it was perfect timing with the pandemic. And I know how stressful it was for you to move it up when it was supposed to be released in June, but it all came just around perfectly. Did it not for you? It did. It, and, and I say this reluctantly because of the circumstances under which people watched it. Obviously the pandemic is, 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 is a harrowing situation that the world has been in for, for this entire year. But I, I definitely could not say that when we had lunch that day, a year and a half before it premiered and whatever that was, that I knew that people would watch it the way that they did. And I've, it's not lost on me that people watched it the way they did because of the circumstances. All the sports fans were going to watch this. Now, remember, originally it was supposed to air the night before the 2020 finals. So it was, it was going to air on uh, June 2nd, 2020 and the finals were supposed to begin on June 4th. So two nights before, and then it was going to air on off nights. So between game one and two, between game two and three, they would check aboard the schedule like that. So ESPN, uh, it would be on ABC first and then ESPN. So I knew that all basketball fans were going to watch it. Sure. It's Michael Jordan who wouldn't watch, but we had a globally captive audience. It didn't come out on Netflix domestically until July 19th, three months after it came out in America on ABC, but the rest of the world had it on Netflix every Monday morning after it aired on ESPN those nights. So, you know, it, it was, it was crazy when we were doing press for this thing. Normally you, you finish a project and then you're on to something else. And by the time it premieres, then you have to do a little bit of media. So the, the, the press demands were really, really stressful because we we're still making the doc in March and April at our, at our homes, in our apartments, you know, what New York apartments look like. Uh, and those became our edit rooms, laptops and desktop computers and things that are not meant to be editing a, a global documentary. But I was doing press during that. And I would talk to, you know, people in Australia or people in Malaysia or people in France. Everybody was in their kitchen or their living room doing these interviews. It really hammered home to me how global uh, this situation was. You know, I, we're so I'm so accustomed to being, you know an American and thinking, oh, it's only going on here. I wish we could be in Australia. They're probably all on the beach there. No, everybody was indoors. So that more than anything else, I'm very proud of the quality of the docs. Don't get me wrong, but more than anything else, it's, it's that people had an opportunity or people had no choice but to sit inside and watch something. And the, there was no sports. It wasn't like we could, all right, we'll watch a soccer game from England because there's no American sports. Or we'll watch a cricket match from Australia. There was nothing. So this was really the only sports globally that was new to anyone for those 
for those five weeks. Sam Smith, Hall of Fame basketball writer, currently NBA.com, the author of the New York Times bestselling The Jordan Rules. And he just had so many phenomenal stories about the great Michael Jordan. The Bulls end up drafting this kid, Michael Jordan. So I remember going to that draft and Rob Thorne said, look, you know, who had drafted a lot of shooting guards, Quentin Bailey and Reggie Theus, and some had success, some didn't. Reggie, as you guys know, from Sacramento. And so I remember on draft night, day, or day in the morning, if you remember, drafts were in the morning then, weren't televised or anything. Ours was at the Bismarck Hotel, and they would have fans in. And he said, look, you know, you know it's not like a, we're going to draft a shooting guard that's going to turn our franchise around or anything. This is a good player, and we'll see where it goes from here. And so the first week, literally I was sent up to the rookie's you know, apartment near the practice facility, spent a day with him. And, uh, you know, what the day in the life of a rookie first coming to Chicago. And so I walked in and Michael Jordan's ironing, ironing clothes. I said, is this a setup? You know, is this for the, <laughs> will you give me some color for the story? <laughs> he says, no, no, no. He says, I iron my clothes. You know, I sew. And I said, well, I don't do those things. How do you, how'd you learn? He said, well, I was, I was always so embarrassed by looks. You know, I had the big ears. And I never thought girls would like me. So he said, when I was in high school, I took home economics courses. And he said, so I can cook and sew and do all those things. I was fortunate, basically, to walk in on the start of Michael Jordan's career in Chicago. Another one of my favorite guests on the podcast was Susan Waldman. She is in the Yankee broadcast booth with John Sterling. She grew up in Boston as a diehard Red Sox and Celtics fan. Then she finds herself working in the late 80s at WFAN Radio in New York, covering all the sports teams. I asked her, what was that like, finding yourself in the New York sports scene after idolizing the Boston teams? Not so much in the last 25 years, but when I got here, you know, when I met Bucky Dent for the first time, who's now one of my dearest friends, I didn't know whether to smack him in the face or shake his hand. I mean, those things, you know, unless, unless Ted Williams is coming back or Carl Fisk is coming back, you know, my, my allegiance is someplace else now. I, I'll tell you, Grant, though, when I'm in Boston, and it's been a while now since, you know, COVID and everything, but when I walk into Fenway Park, it hasn't changed a lot inside and I'm walking in there with my grandfather and that's the only time it hits me and you know and the players are not the same now and I don't really know these players the way I did and you know and everybody else is retired I'll, I'll tell you, you said I, I said that about Bucky Dead when I first met Reggie Jackson for the first time I, I could feel my face get red with anger mm-hmm. and it, you know that doesn't change but those guys aren't there anymore and I've been in New York a really long time <laughs> a really long time so I think I've kind of morphed into into both and you know and, and New York is the place where you know, it was, I think it probably, and was probably the easiest place to break, to break into if you're a female, because there's so many different facets of, of New York. It was hard, obviously, and there are still people who don't accept me, and, and, you know, I had some terrible times during this. But, you know, as it gets further and further away from, you know, Uncle Johnny Pesky and Ted Williams and, and Bobby Dorr and, and Carlton Fisk and, you know, the 67 Impossible Dream Team, you know, it's, it's very different now. 
you talk about being in this business, you live for great interviews. Steve Sands, Golf Channel, NBC Sports, started there 20 years ago. I've known Steve now for about 10 years. I think he does a fabulous job. I'm a huge fan of his. And I asked him if there's one interview above the others that stands out as his favorite. The most fun I've ever had doing an interview, and I think the best one I've ever been involved in, had Roger Federer down near near where you are, Grant, at, at Doral. Roger Federer was playing the old tennis tournament at Key Biscayne, mm-hmm. and Tiger was playing, and the PGA Tour was playing a World Golf Championship at Doral. And actually, it was before a World Golf Championship. It was, a, it was an event at Doral, the PGA Tour event at Doral. And Federer went over to watch Tiger. At the time, Tiger was the number one player in the world in golf, and Federer was the number one player in the world in tennis. The two, arguably, greatest players of their generation, and some might argue the greatest players of all time. And I just happened to say to Tiger afterwards, hey, can we grab you a second? He said, of course, not a big deal. And I looked at Roger. I said, I'd never met Roger. And I said, any chance that you'd want to kind of do it together with him? And they, they were friends. He came to watch him. And again, I'd never met Roger. But I figured I'd ask. And Roger goes, yeah, sure. Happy to. Could not have been nicer. Wow. Grant. Could not have been a better guy. Here we are. And normally in TV, you know, interviews are not very long. You know, you got to get back to the action. But here you have Roger Federer and Tiger Woods. And we went on for a good 9, 10, 11 minutes. Back and forth. The questions and answers flowing so easily. You know, there are very few people on the planet who know what it's like to be you. But you do. So what's it like? What's more difficult? Being number one in tennis, being number one in golf, being, you know, what's, what's, how would you compare getting to the top of your sport versus remaining at the top of your sport? What's life like being Roger Federer, being Tiger? It was amazing to go back and forth with them on it. And we went on forever. So to me, the most fun I've ever had, and to me, the best interview I've ever been lucky enough to be involved in was that one. The two greatest players, in my opinion, of their generation. Absolutely. I don't think of all time, perhaps, maybe. You could argue that, but of their generation. And it's the two individual sports. It's not team sports, you know? You could argue Mike Trout or someone else. You not could even close. You right. Michael. But like Roger and Tiger in their individual sports grant, it was, uh, it was a special time. It was a lot of fun. Dusty Baker, join me. What a baseball career for Dusty with the Atlanta Braves, the L.A. Dodgers. You know, I think about Dusty and what he has meant to Sacramento coming out of Del Campo High School. I think about what Dusty has meant to so many baseball players as he has 23 years in the books as a big league manager. Think about that for a minute. 23 years years for Dusty Baker as a big league skipper. He was one game away from taking the Houston Astros to the World Series. But we talked about a lot of things. But I started off because I really wanted to know for a young man growing up in California, what it was like when he was drafted and went to play professionally with the Atlanta Braves. 
at that time, I mean, you know, Carmichael didn't didn't prepare me for you know for that. You know, that was <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, when I you know my first stop was in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they they wouldn't let us off the bus. The black players off the bus to eat, and the white players had to get us our our meals for us. And you know, I mean, I went from. You know, hate Ashbury and and Berkeley, Sacramento to the Deep South when you know there were freedom marches, there were riots, there was anti-Vietnam, and then during that during that time also joined the Marines, and so you know which wasn't a very popular thing, but I had to join the Marines. I didn't have to; I could have joined the National Guard, but the National Guard was being called out, you know, on riots, and I'm like, no, I'm certainly not going to do that, and that's why I joined the Marines. But I prayed the night of the draft that. I would not be drafted by the Atlanta Braves because I didn't want to go to the deep South because I had seen, you know, my parents were, were leaders, especially in Riverside, the, you know, NAACP and I was in the junior NAACP. And so, you know, I was, you know, my dad got Ebony, CPA, got Jet magazine. So my family was, was way up on the, on the civil rights action and, and in the middle of it. And so it was like, Ooh, I, I really didn't want to go there, but Hank Aaron promised my mom that I'd be, you treat me, you know, like his son. And, and that's why my mom let me sign against my dad's, you know, permission. And, you know, we didn't speak for three years. I thought, you wow. know, that famous, I'm a man now I can do what I want. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And so I was, I was, uh, I was in a bit of a turmoil, like between that going to, uh, you know, the racial unrest that they gone in the South, uh, Vietnam, you know, peace and love. I mean, I was like, I was torn in a lot of directions, but that was the best thing that happened to me being around Hank Aaron. And, you know, during that time, you know, I got to meet some of the, some of the civic leaders of our, of our time. I didn't know how much history I was actually walking through when, when you're hanging with, you know, Jesse Jackson and Hank Aaron and Cecil Williams and, Andrew Young and Maynard Jackson and, uh, uh, you know, Jesse Jackson and Herman Russell, uh, Ted Abernathy. And, and finally, w- when Hank took me to the state house, it was right down the street from Atlanta, uh, Fulton County Stadium to go have lunch on a number of times with, you know, Jimmy Carter and his mom. And so that was something that I look back upon that I was very, very fortunate to, to have been born when I was born and also to go through the things that I was kind of forced to go through, but I, I figure I was one of the chosen one from God. You know, the reason I was, I was in that situation. You know, that's fascinating to hear you talk about that. And if we fast forward to 2020 and what's going on in this country right now, and sports have really jumped, I think, to the forefront of bringing social justice issues uh, out into the forefront. But you've been through so much and you were through so much as you sit here in your early 70s. What's your take on what's going on now in this country as it relates to race? Well, I mean, you know, I see some of the same things, you know, I saw before, you know, I mean, there's 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 probably as much or more division than there than there was, you know, before. I'm telling you, I mean. In some ways, we've made a lot of progress. You know, I see a bunch of commercials on TV. I remember when Jim Brown and Raquel Welch were in a love scene together, and that that was a big uproar. And or when that's right, when you know Sidney Poitier was was in the guess who's coming to dinner, and you know which was me a couple of times. And so, but what I do see also are are, are interracial, you know, commercials. I mean, big time. You know, 
And then, and then I, I see the young kids that are, that are protesting peacefully. You know, back in the day, most of the protests, you know, were, you know, were African Americans, and and many times, you know, the white Americans were Jewish, Jewish descent. Now I see everybody out there: Native Americans, uh, Asians, you know, Indians, black, white, young, young people, old people, and so that gives me, uh, you know, some hope of the future that. That, that the young people, I mean, it's going to be their time. And, and hopefully we can make some change, you know, for them. You know, I mean, I'm 70 years old, but I have a 21-year-old son. Sure. And, you know, which which is right in his his mind. And then I also have a 10-month-old grandson that's, you know, for my daughter. I mean, that's going to be, you know, his future life. So I'm just hoping that, you know, we can leave, uh, you know, a better world for them and they can remain together and hopefully, you know, this separation that that has been caused, you know, reunited and stay united and not just for a period of time. Well, I tell you, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did, kind of going back, reminiscing and just kind of reliving some of the great moments that we had on the podcast. And I can't thank you enough for your subscriptions, your comments, for your feedback on social media, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be with the questions on crowd question. And by the way, speaking of a crowd question, we're going to table that until Tuesday because of the length of the podcast. Because I just thought that you would all want to, you know, kind of relive some of the great moments uh, with the last three months. You know, people, I had someone just yesterday go, all right, of all the podcasts, which one is your favorite? And I, the two that really stick out Dusty Baker, because I've known Dusty, as he said, we've known each other uh, for 20 years, and I have so much respect for Dusty. And then the other would probably be Sean Salisbury. You know, Sean, to do, I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is, he is somebody that truly doesn't just talk, but he backs it up, all right? He really is somebody that puts it, it puts it in action. I don't really know how else to say it. And I have so much respect for Sean Salisbury. But that story, that story about Russell, I could listen to that every single day. Hey, today's podcast also is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And you know what's great about Manscaped? Their engineering team has perfected the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. Now, their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade. It reduces grooming accidents. And when I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave. The waterproof technology allows you to groom in the shower. And you know, one of the coolest features is the LED light, which illuminates grooming areas for a closer and more precise trimming. Hey, if you're listening to this right now, I want you to experience it firsthand for yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. That's right, 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. It's time for Rant. 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 You know, I was thinking about 
what am I going to do for a rant on January 1st, 2021? And you know what? I'm not really going to do a rant to start off the new year because we just got through the most miserable, most effed up 2020. I mean, we want to get the hell away from 2020, so I can't just start off the new year with a rant, can I? I mean, can I really do a rant on New Year's Day? I mean, how would a rant sound to start off the new year after what we just experienced in 2020? So I'll just tell you this, all right, because my rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing of Sacramento, locally owned for 20 years. For your plumbing needs and repairs, just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. So my rant for today is this. There is no rant for today. You know why? It's the start of a new year. It's January 1st, 2021. And my rant is just this. I'm happy as hell that 2020 is in the freaking rearview mirror. We said goodbye to it when the clock struck midnight. Get the hell out of here, 2020. Happy freaking new year, everybody. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for subscribing, your comments. I cannot thank you enough. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to If You Don't Like That with Grant Napier. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.